podcast. I'm your host Marcus Luhr and uh, today we're crossing over to Manchester in England to catch up with Mr. Paul McVeigh. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Hi Marcus, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great and I'm um, looking forward to our conversation here over the next hour on unpacking your world of coming in as a professional player, playing in the Premier League, uh, for some big teams and also seeing what it means to come up and come down in the relegation battles, which is obviously, you know, heating up right now in uh, in football around the world. But then really ending up to, and this is what we, we want to get to at the end of the conversation, of course, is what you're doing now. Being a Premier League footballer turned psychologist uh, to some degree with a master degree in psychology. So this is really what we're going to be covering here and learning from your interesting experiences, of course, playing football at the highest level. And of course, how you turn this into you know, your career now and, and, the, and the things you're doing. So looking forward to that. And, and as we always do, we kind of start a bit right at the beginning. Uh, I believe you grew up in Belfast, and I'm sure that's a bit of a rough neighborhood at times. Tell us a bit about it, you know, growing up there and how you got into football and I guess, uh, you know, how you ended up with your first big, uh, you know, club. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a really diplomatic way of putting it, that it's a kind of enough, a rough neighborhood <laughs> when you're growing up in Belfast in the, in the troubled times of the 1970s, 1980s. Yes. And yeah, it was, it, was very, um, it was very strange when you try and explain this of what it was like to the people who weren't, weren't there and maybe only just saw it on the news or in the media, that yep. essentially it was the most normal thing in the world. Okay. All I did was I went to school every day and then I went outside my front door with all my friends who lived around the street and played football pretty much for the rest of the hours in the day until it became dark. And then my mum came outside and called me back into the house. And, and that was the normal upbringing that I had. But of course, it's only when I came across the London and joined Tottenham Hotspur in 1994 and walking through the, you know, the, the leafy streets of North London and realised that Actually, when I grew up in Belfast and as the the tanks were driving down my street and as the soldiers in the full army gear with their rifles pointing at you as you're walking past and going to school and every day pretty much there was another bomb going off in your area. And it was only when I got to London and realised that's not very normal for people through that. Yeah, like but at the time as a kid, when you don't know anything else, then it is normal. And that's right. just what everybody did. But essentially it was a, it was a great place to grow up because it was filled with community and it was filled with great people. And there was lots of laughter, obviously lots of hard times as well, whatever, you know, people either get caught up in the troubles or went to prison or, or get killed as, as maybe innocent or not so innocent victims in it. Mm -hmm. And ultimately it was, it was just a very, very unique experience growing up in that, in that era. I can imagine. Yeah, and, and I can, we probably could spend the entire hour just talking about this. I'm sure <laughs> we wanted to, but which is obviously not the point. But uh, you know, it's it's. I always love the uh, the background, right? Because I think that at the end, of, we all know this: the background does shape the person, right, and the personality of it as well. And so I'm sure there are things from from your years there we'll hear later as well. Um, so how did you then land uh, with your first club? Um, you know, playing on the streets of Belfast is one thing. Uh, landing at a professional football team and, and playing, you know, Premier League level, that's another whole level altogether. So take us through that a bit. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting because all I did was, as I said, I was playing football pretty much every minute 
of every day when I wasn't either at school or doing my homework. So mm. all I did was was playing for local teams. And I remember when my dad came back from work one day, he used to work at Ford Motor Company and he was working in the IT department. And, and one of the guys came up to him and said, oh, I hear you've got a son, Paul, who plays football. And my dad said, yeah. And he said, oh, we have a we have a club. We have a, a junior boys club. Would you like to come up and play for us? So my dad came back and asked me and I just said, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Now, really interestingly, I had no idea that that yes, okay was going to change my life because then when I went up to training on the first day, which this was as an 11-year-old since about 1989, mm-hmm. and on my first day training at this new club, I walked up, went into the change room, got changed, went out, started training, and within five minutes, there were two scouts who happened to be watching us training that day just by pure coincidence because one of them happened to be the under 12s manager and I was under 11 at the time and he was training his team on the next pitch he was a Spurs scout and in my team at the time there was a there was a guy called Steve Maguire and his grandfather had been a professional footballer and the, at that stage he was currently a scout for Liverpool and when both these two scouts for Liverpool and Spurs saw me train and within five minutes they both went around and asked my dad could they bring me over to both Liverpool and Spurs. And <laughs> the story goes, because the Spurs scout was about 20 years younger than the Liverpool scout, he got round to my dad faster. Oh, and so he okay. asked my dad, and my dad said yes. And so I ended up going to Tottenham Hotspur at age 16. Right, okay. And and you were there for almost six years. So 16, let's say, to 22. Um, you know, so tell us from, you know, coming there still as a, as a young lad, um, you know, go, talk through this, you know, what does it take to, you know, really coming again, just playing a bit for fun to all of a sudden realizing that this is a career out there and, and you, you know, you can earn a lot of money. Yeah, well, that, that was the interesting part that all I wanted to do whenever I was a kid was I just wanted to be a professional footballer, probably like millions of kids around the world, not just, you know, I wasn't any different. Yep. Seeing these superstars on TV, seeing them in the World Cup. And, you know, even whenever I was I was a youngster at Tottenham Hotspur, my absolute idol was Paul Gascoigne. You know, he just started in the 1990 World Cup. He'd been an amazing player for Spurs already. And so seeing these players that you just really looked up to and admired. And then, of course, on my first day in 1994, your old friend, Marcus, Jürgen Klinsmann, comes <laughs> in and signs for Tottenham Hotspur. And again, having this German international, this World Cup winner, training with me as a 16 year old kid on my first day at Spurs was just incredible and and what I kind of find really interesting now is when you go into the psychology of this because I didn't realize that growing up in Belfast just because I had an Irish accent just because I was always the smallest player in the team I didn't realize it but I had an inferiority complex I always felt that other players were better and I was never as good as anyone else and you know it wasn't I never probably had what it takes to be you know a professional so on my first day of meeting Jurgen Klinsmann this was probably compounded by the fact that I had an inferiority complex whilst meeting a world cup winner and the stars aligned for me to create a belief in my head that there is no way in the world I will ever make it as a professional footballer which clearly whenever you're going into training with these you know top players every single day is not a good belief to have but unfortunately probably through no fault of my own I I created this so I actually struggled in the first couple of years not only I couldn't keep up physically with the demands of professional football training five six times a week Mm -hmm. training with the likes of 
was Saul Campbell, who was just an incredible athlete, an amazing player. Obviously, went on to be an invincible with Arsenal, mm-hmm. training with the likes of Teddy Sheringham, who went on, you know, to play for Manchester United, and he was already the Premier League Golden Boot winner the year I joined. He went on to win the treble with Manchester United in '99. You know, all these top top players who you were training with, and not only were they technically outstanding, but physically they were amazing. And I was the complete opposite. So. I really struggled, and I think the probably a really long story short, what happened was we had a player in our team called Rory Allen, and Rory was probably the best player in our youth team, so he was got from the youth team into the reserve team first, mm-hmm. and then when we all stepped up into the reserve team, he then made his debut for Tottenham Hotspur in 1997, I think it was January 1997, but it was against that incredible Man United team of the late 90s that I just mentioned, where it had David Beckham, uh, Roy Keane, Paul Scholes, Ryan Giggs, Peter Schmeichel, you know, all these amazing players. And my friend Rory, on his debut against Manchester United, live on national television in front of all the crowd, the Spurs fans at White Hart Lane scored scored on his debut. (laughs) Amazing. It was so amazing to watch your friend score against the likes of David Beckham, etc. And what happened, and this was the interesting part, what happened when I was celebrating with my all my friends and all the rest of the teammates in the stand, it was like a little, you know, a switch was flicked in my head. And I just remember looking at my friends celebrating in front of 35,000 fans and just thinking, if he can do that, then so can I. And amazingly, within three months, I'd gone from this really shy, naive player who just had no belief in themselves. And within three months, I made my Premier League debut playing against the likes of Gareth Southgate, who was the centre-half marking me for Aston Villa on my debut up at Villa Park, and then played away at Anfield against, you know, Robbie Fowler and Steve McManaman and Stan Collymore and all these amazing players. And then on my home debut against Covinger on the last day of the season, I scored on my Premier League home debut. And, And amazing to think that three months earlier, I didn't even think I could, she'd be a professional footballer, never mind playing in the Premier League. That's amazing. I mean, obviously, someone else saw the potential in you, or you wouldn't have been even there, right? Uh, so your your own uh, doubt. Um, clearly, someone else saw more in that. But uh, as you as you now obviously being a psychologist yourself, uh, you can probably interpret that uh, even better. Um, how you were struggling, I guess, at that time. That's really interesting. How old were you? Just uh, let's let's put some timing on this here. You were in your when you had, when you had your debut in the. I prison. was nineteen. It was nineteen ninety seven. And I played up front with with Teddy Sheringham, who at the time had just starred in the in the Euro '96 European Championships. Obviously, whenever England lost to Germany, right. famously in the semi final on penalties, and you know, and that's why when you playing with these guys who obviously are playing at the very pinnacle, you know, complete the top of professional football, international football. So one minute they're playing in Wembley Stadium, playing against your team, Germany, and losing on penalties. And the next week they're training with me at the Spurs training ground and I'm trying to learn as much as I can. And mm. and it's right, going back to what you said, it's, it's really interesting when you try and break it down. Obviously, I wasn't aware of what I was doing and holding myself back and the fact that you said, you know, other people clearly saw something in me. And that's the interesting thing, that it's not because anyone was telling me I wasn't good enough. This was all just happening in my head. Mm. I was just the one who was saying, I'm probably not going to be a professional footballer. I'm probably not going to have what it takes to be, you know, up at that their level. 
But actually, what's really interesting, it's probably just not, you know, young players in professional football have this issue. You know, if you think about in the corporate world, you know, people who are either getting promoted, going into jobs, who have either not asked for the promotion and suddenly are promoted into this higher level that they're not used to, or people who do apply for jobs and suddenly they find themselves as a, I don't know, a director or CEO of a company. And then that's whenever the doubt and this little voice in your head that starts talking and then you start thinking how helpful are we actually being to ourselves or are a lot of people doing what I was doing when I was a kid when actually we're creating beliefs about ourselves and what we're not capable of doing rather than what we are capable of doing. Yeah, yeah and I'm sure we'll get a little more into detail that later as well. Um, but I want to stick a bit, you know, obviously to your, your football career um, before we get into the next sort of parts here. Um you know, first of all, actually, maybe share. You know, what is what was sort of normally the position you played, and or what what was the favorite part? Uh, you know, in there, and and obviously, you know, how do you then ended up going from Tottenham uh, to your next place, uh, Norwich, uh, which again you spent almost seven years, um, and that was obviously a little more of a roller coaster, up and down. Um, you know, th- uh, being uh, you know promoted and being relegated with a club, and and again the mo- a bit the motions right from the you know from a psychology point of view you know what does it mean for a player when when of course when you go up but also you know what happens again when you go down yeah so it's it's actually it's i think you've hit the nail on the head there it is a complete roller coaster of a journey of the emotions you experience and and actually just trying to deal with that is challenging enough but as you mentioned earlier you know you have to have the technical ability the physical ability as well as the emotional fortitude mm. to be able to deal with the this, I'd say that the, the toughness that you need to have, because when you think about it, if you have a bad day at work, if you go in an office and you have a bad day at work, you know, how many people know about that? Well, you know, probably your boss, maybe some of your teammates and maybe a couple of people in the department. Yep. If I had a bad day at work, there was either 40,000 people in the stadium who were shouting things at you. There were probably <laughs> a lot more people online on social media who were already giving you, you know, abuse and grief. And I know I was just coming into the time of when social media really took off. But if it wasn't the press, if it wasn't social media, it was either the written press or the TV or the reporter. So it was the same experience. Or the neighbors. <laughs> so it didn't really matter. It was all of these skills that you needed. But I feel like that as I started as a striker at Spurs, and that's where I was probably I felt my most impactful that, you know, if it was scoring goals or setting up goals, mm-hmm. and that was probably what I enjoyed the most. But what was really interesting, when I went to Norwich City, we had a manager called Nigel Worthington, and maybe because we had our sort of our better players were our strikers at the time. So we had someone like Craig Bellamy, who was mm. a young player when I first arrived at 21, 22, and he was only 17 but he was just about to leave and go and join Coventry City for six million at the time, which was a huge fee for a 17 year old. Mm-hmm. And then for someone like Craig Bellamy to go on, have the amazing career that he had, it meant that the manager thought, you're probably not going to play as a striker. Why don't we try and put you onto the wings and play in midfield? Okay. So you're still going to have an attacking instinct, but we just need you to run more and more up and down, which right. I wouldn't say that was my strong point. But again, it's probably part of the theme that was running through my career, which was the ability to adapt adapt. and change my approach so that I could ultimately achieve my outcome. Now, what was my outcome? 
well, he was playing every single week for a first team, whether it was Tottenham Hotspur, Norwich City, Burnley, whoever else I ended up playing for. It was just about playing every single week. And what's really interesting, especially if you look at a, you know, a young player now, my goal whenever I was a kid was I wanted to be a professional footballer. I didn't want to be a professional striker. <laughs> I wanted to be a professional footballer, which meant I should be able to play anywhere. And so when I went to Norwich City, because the manager suggested I started learning how to play on the wing or in midfield, it then just gave me another element of my game, which I probably didn't have earlier in my career. But the more that you learn, the more you learn about new positions, the more you learn about understanding the game, it just gives you more options. So then the manager didn't have to choose between do we play Paul as a striker or do we put him on the bench? Mm. It was then an option of do we play him as a striker? Do we play him as a number 10? Do we play him on left midfield, right midfield? Right. You know, where can we fit him into the team? And the more times I could score goals or set up goals, it gave me more opportunities to play football, which is ultimately what I was trying to do. Absolutely. No, and again, like you said, you know, expanding your skill sets doesn't matter whether we talk about a corporate career here or otherwise, right? It's, it's the key to the puzzle. And you did it obviously on the field. Uh, the example we just shared. Now, I remember having a, having a Rainer Schüttler, who's a professional German tennis player on the podcast before. And, and the part he was sharing, and I'd love your thoughts on it too, is really the, the losing and winning part, right? Which is obviously it's very close to each other, right? Um, in, in sports. And it happens probably more regularly than in any other business, right? You don't win in business constantly, unless you may be in sales and, and you're doing some small selling where, you know, you could argue every day you win, you, you, you close a deal or you lose a deal. Um, but, you know, and if you lower, if you, the more you go up the corporate ladder up, your, your wins are probably lesser and, and, and your losses, whatever, could be more regularly. But, You know, in sports, I think it's so extreme, right? I mean, it's it's a fine line on one thing. On the other hand, it literally almost happens every other week, right? Um, there, you know, you're not going to win unless you Manchester United, maybe, which has more of a <laughs> habit to constantly win at that time, at least, right? Um, but everyone else has to be dealing with this. How how do you deal with this as a player? You know, what what is it really? What's the trick here? Is it just to blank it out and not you know worry about it and just go well? The, the next match is just around the corner, or or what do you guys do? Yeah, that's, that's such a good question. And it's also such an incredibly difficult question to answer. Mm. So uh, I think the way that the more that I am, um, I became more experienced, let's say more mature, I think definitely more educated in terms of the psychology and mindset. And it's interesting, we had a sports psychologist work with us um, It was probably my second year at Norwich City. And we managed to get to the playoff final. And so we were in the final at, um, it was actually the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff, 75,000 people, and we were playing, and whoever won this game would get into the Premier League. Right. Now, it was probably my best season to date because I just started the season on the bench. wasn't really much expectations of me to you know, do anything in the team because I hadn't done previously. And then one of our star strikers or star midfielders got injured. I came in and left midfield to replace him after 10 minutes at home against Manchester City. And I ended up scoring the second goal of that game. We won 2-0. Kevin Keegan was the manager at the time and ended up, that was the start or that was my platform for me to build on playing the rest of that season. I then played 40 games, scored 10 goals, got into, you know, we get into the playoff final. And even when we walked around at the end of that game and we lost on penalties, everybody in the team, practically everybody was devastated. 
you know, you are within touching distance of getting to the promised land, getting back to the Premier League where everybody wants to play. We'd lost on penalties. Really cruel. But I remember walking around the stadium and almost, you know, doing like a lap of honour and applauding all the fans. And it was it was like the best day of my life. So not only did I have personally felt like I had a really, really good game, probably one of the best games I'd ever played in my life. Mm. At the end of the match, as I've been walking around with the manager, I had a smile on my face. And I just remember saying to him, and I was like, this is amazing. And he was, you know, I could see he was upset, but I think he was old enough to be able to take in the fact that this was so special Mm. that yes, we'd lost. Yes, if you break it down to the fact that we weren't going to be in the Premier League. But actually, when you step back and think about it, it's not necessarily about the winning and the losing and the successes and the failures. It's about the experiences that we have as individuals mm. and how they cre- then create that in that bond and that unit that we had as a team. And that team, that experience with that team, with that set of players, the manager, and for me in my first year, I actually walked around that stadium not disappointed not because I thought well I'm never going to play in the Premier League more just the fact of feeling really proud really humbled by what I was able to experience on that day and it was such an incredible feeling that even though we'd lost the game but I felt like the progress that I'd had personally and the team considering the year before we nearly got relegated the progress that the team had I was so confident and so sure that we would carry on doing what we're doing. And interestingly, the next year, we didn't make the playoffs, but I had my best season again, and I was top scorer for the club. And then the following season, we had an even better season. We won the league, and we got back into the Premier League. So whatever was happening, you could feel that this was us on the uphill, and we were going up to the peak of the mountain. Not, yes, okay, this one game is us losing this match, but actually that's not the most important thing right now. But, no, I love that. I, I think uh, I like what you said here and it, it just enjoying that moment. Like you said, you know, yes, you can be devastated because it, it obviously means a lot of money for everyone, for the club and I'm sure the players and everyone, right, uh, would have uh, winning it, um, but not letting that completely distract or, or destroy you the other way around, right? Um, and enjoying that, I think that is that's a that's a really powerful statement. I think it's a, it's a great message too, because like I said, you know, we, we everyone has their losses, right? It's a matter of how you deal with it um, and how you then come back, right? And in this case, again, it's a sort of Cinderella story at the end of it, right? Uh, a couple of years later, then uh, you guys made it up. Uh, um, now that's that's very cool. Um, now, unfortunately, from what I recall, and, and just to stay on Norwich for a second here, uh, I think you guys the year after then went back down again, right? Um, yeah. Was again was what was the feeling there? Um, Do you feel like the, the team let itself down, or um, again you felt, look, I've done my best. Um, that, that's what, I did everything I could, but you know maybe at this time we weren't good enough, or or how did you deal deal with that? Again, it was it was back to, you know, what was expected of us. And at that time, we were playing against, you know, Jose Mourinho's Chelsea, who went on to win the league that year. It was mm-hmm. just after the year that Arsenal had gone through the entire season unbeaten, okay. you know, with the likes of yep. Thierry Henry and Dennis Bergkamp and Patrick Vieira, etc. Um, whenever you're playing against these players, it was, again, it was so surreal because I hadn't really had a lot of experience of playing against these. Some of the people on our team had a little bit more experience, but I was, it was almost like 
while we're like my first away game that season, we played at Old Trafford and I scored against Manchester United mm-hmm. and Cristiano Ronaldo was marking nice. me. You know, and that's <laughs> the kind of things where you think, oh my goodness, this is actually the kind of stuff that's happening in your life every single yeah. week. Lots and so, <laughs> absolutely. And of course, at the end of the season, you know, the table doesn't lie. We simply weren't good enough. The worst thing was, and probably what was more disappointing was at the end of that season on the last day of the season there was four teams who could potentially have been relegated and we were in the best position so we were just outside the relegation zone so if we had have won our game away at Fulham we would have definitely have stayed up and no one could have caught us but the problem was a I wasn't even selected in the team b our team lost 6-0 away at Fulham on the last day of the season so then it ended up West Brom were the team that stayed up because they scored and managed to get a win when they probably shouldn't have done. So anyway, all yeah, com- comes to the end and it realises that at the end of that 38-game season, we weren't good enough to stay in the Premier League. And so we got relegated, disappointed. And then the following season was because there are natural cycles with teams, you know, the team was probably getting a little bit older, probably wasn't having the same injection of younger players and fresh talent into the squad. And then it just became a bit stale for the next couple of years. And then again, by that stage, I'd been at Norwich City for nearly eight years and it was just time to move on, whether I wanted to or not, but it definitely was the right time. So interesting how these things happen. And then for me to go to join Luton Town at a time when they were in real financial difficulties. So again, not that I want this world record, but I think I'm the only person or the only team player of a team that's ever been relegated or sorry, ever been deducted 40 points within a 12-month period. So because Luton went into administration, we deducted mm. 10 points and we had to sell our, our captain, our best player, um, and we had to sack our manager because of all the wages that they were on. Then we started the next season, minus 30 points. So even by the time we got to Christmas that year and all the games that we'd won, we still hadn't managed to get the zero. So again, you can imagine how difficult that is. Although ironically, at the end of that season, we won a cup and a trophy at Wembley. So we definitely had a decent team, but Mm. we just didn't manage to stop the two relegations. And so I ended up coming to 2009. I was without a club. We'd just been relegated, thinking this is really tough times in my footballing career. And very fortunately, um, Brian Gunn was the manager at Norwich City, and he asked me to come back, and they wanted to have a look at me. And so I went up and trained with them. Actually, we went to Scotland for a few days. And at the end of those few days, I managed to score in one of the games and he offered me a contract. And so I had my last year as a player in 2009-10. And Brand Gunn, unfortunately, was sacked after a few few games of the season. And we brought in, again, someone who you might know very well, who did incredibly well in Germany with Borussia Dortmund, a guy called Paul Lambert. Mm. And Paul Lambert came in as our manager. And I've just never seen anyone who's so focused so much of a winner it's just an incredible guy to be around because he dragged everybody with us and we were struggling at the start of that season with only one maybe one game out of the first five or six and we then went on and I remember playing in the first game that he'd taken over and he put me in the, the starting 11 and we won the first I think five or six games and then probably we had a bit of a wobble I probably didn't play as well as I could have done and then he dropped me from the team and that team went on and our team went on to have a 30 game unbeaten run and we end up we won the league and get promoted again so that for me was just a perfect time to stop playing call call a day on my playing career hang up the boots whatever you want to call it and go into something something else completely different and it's just another chapter in my life from 2010 onwards. 
Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll definitely talk about it. But I, I have one question which just came to me, um, which I'd love to hear your professional football opinion on. Um, now, the manager or the coach, whatever we want to call him, obviously is extremely important, right, in the setup of the team and how the team plays and all the fun stuff. But at the end of the day, it's the players who are on the field, right? We have to do the execution, right? He can scream all. He's can. He's on the sideline. He can scream as much as he wants. Um, at the end of the day, you guys have to execute, right? You know. Mm. But you know, as we all know, the the coaches are normally the first guys always get fired, right? If something isn't yeah. working within a team, what's your opinion now? Both from a bit of a psychology, but also you know, being both in the uh, you know being on the playing field side of it and. You know, having seen all this, like you said, just mentioned, you know, you, you worked under great coaches and maybe not so great coaches, you know, or not so great teams. Um, what is it a combo of both, which probably probably the answer, but or, or what is it really? Where you know, who is the end of the day is is should be fired uh, or or should really is in, you know is is responsible for the results? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I would say that I think there has to be a collective responsibility that it has to be down to, yes, the coach and the players. So it's almost like it's easier to sack the coach and get rid of one contract rather than get rid of 20 players sure, in their contract. So I'd say that, but ultimately, the person who is deciding, who is dictating, who is choosing the players, choosing the formations, the tactics, you, like you just see such a massive variation of the way teams play now. You know, are they pressing teams? Are they possession teams? Do they want to play it out from the back? Do they want to, you know, drop all the way off and, and defend as much as possible? And so this all comes from the coach. So the coach is making so many decisions, not only just in terms of matches, but also in terms of the training, in terms of how they train, in terms of building the rapport with the players, in terms of building the, the culture within the team, what they accept. And I think that's probably the best way to put it. The coach dictates the standards and the culture mm -hmm. of a team yep. and if one person is dictating this then if they're responsible for the culture and the way the team plays then if the team's not performing then ultimately the coach Start has there. to have that it comes with him but i would just say that there are so many times whenever the players stop playing for the coach and obviously that's again back to the dynamics of the teamwork between the coach and the players so let me just give you this last example marcus I knew every single day whenever our coach or manager would walk into the training ground within about five or 10 minutes, how that day or that training session would go. Because the manager, most of the managers that we had were so unable to keep their personal life or their professional challenges or issues out of Oh, what wow. we were doing on a training field. So I could tell if a manager walked in, if he was in a bad mood, that right. he was probably going to give us a hard time and he probably wasn't going to give us a lot of jokes and banter and humor and all of the stuff that you kind of need to have because it's an incredibly difficult profession. It's so ruthless. It's so competitive. Right. But if you try to, and there's so much pressure and so many people are expecting things and every fan wants their team to be the best. And whenever that doesn't happen, it's very easy to let all the external pressures come into the team. And the only way that lots of players are able to deal with this is that they don't think about it. They don't realize just how important and how, how much pressure they're under. So there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of kind of, you know, ways to try and get rid of the pressure that mm. ultimately everybody's on because everybody's performing. You're performing for your life, for your livelihood, for your career, for your family, for the fans, for the club, everything. Yeah. Yeah. But to try and, 
deal with that mentally every single day is probably too much. I'll give another quick analogy. Mm. It's like a soldier going into battle thinking about what could actually happen. They probably don't need to think about what's the consequences or what might actually be what the scenario. I just have to think about what do I need to do today? What's my job? If someone tells me what to do, what's our best way of coming home safely? And so whatever you think about, it's so big. And obviously it's a difference between life and death, but it's the same challenge as people who are dealing with millions and billions of pounds or dollars or euro contracts. They're thinking, wow, if you have to actually realize just how important this is and one mistake completely messes up this for, you know, thousands of people, it's very, very difficult for one person to get their head around that. Yeah. No, I, I have no doubt the the pressure on the players and everyone the 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 manager is is insane here. Now that that kind of leads also nicely into obviously you know you're finishing your career and and if I recall looking at your CV here sort of at the tail end of your career you were starting to um, go back to school a bit as well um, to start you know the sort of psychology pass um, which then also eventually led to a, a master degree in it. Um, where did that come from? Was it you already had a you know sort of sense that's you know when you're finishing playing football that's where you would like to go into or where how did that start? Well, it actually started back in 1995 whenever I just joined Tottenham Hotspur in '94, and because I was I'd say I was struggling with the demands and mm-hmm. both physical and mental and emotional challenges, and my friend actually gave me a book. By a guy called Tony Robbins, Anthony Robbins, who's oh, a big really? personal development guru in America. And what's really interesting about that, well, the whole scenario is which book was it? Just it was person. called Awaken the, the Giant, Giant Within. Within. Oh my God! Yes, that's funny. So because it was such a big book, because it was not only was it you know 500 pages, because it was so you know well known at the time, and obviously millions of people had already bought it and used it and applied it to their life. There was probably a couple of different scenarios could have happened. He could have offered me the book and I could have said, no, thanks. He could have offered me the book and politely I could have taken it and thrown it into the corner of my room and never read it. But what actually happened was he offered me the book. I said, okay, I'll read that. Not only did I start reading the book, I then read the entire book. And not only did I do that, I then read the lessons from what Tony Robbins was suggesting Hmm. to my life. So one of the things that I really took from that book was around goal setting mm-hmm. and just how everything that we do around goal setting has got to be around clarity. You know, if you say, oh, my goal is to have more money. Okay, well, if someone gives you five pounds or five euros, then you've got more money. But that's probably not your goal. You know, it's probably not what you've set out to achieve in life. But if you say, and I did at the time as a young player, I was like, how much do I think Teddy Sheridan was earning at the time? At the time, it was £5,000 a week, which was, you know, the most money that probably anyone in England was earning. Right. I thought, I'd love to get the £5,000, right? I'm setting myself a goal. I'm going to earn £5,000 a week. Right. Well, because that's so specific, unless I earn £5,000 a week, I will never have achieved that goal versus Another way to set a goal is I want more money. Yeah. So because I was setting these really specific goals with specific timeframes based on my career and where I was at, that actually the reason why I ended up doing my degree was because I set myself a goal. Right. <laughs> and I set myself a goal that I wanted to start my degree before I turned 30. Right. And so I actually tried to do it two years before and I didn't have the qualifications to do it. So I needed to do another course to get on to the degree and then it was only when on my 29th birthday, and because I turned 30 in the December that year, in September of that year, of my 29th birthday, 
that I start my degree. So by the time I th- turned 30, a couple of months later, I'd already achieved that goal. Well, that's amazing. And, and the, the part which is even more amazing, I'll, I'll share my story real quick, Paul, is I read the same book. Okay, yeah, in 1997, or actually, wow. So, you know, I, I can remember you said in 95 or 96, so around a similar time, I read this. Um, and anyone who knows me will know that is kick, that's how I was uh, after, after reading it. And similar, like you said, it's a huge book, and there was a lot of exercises in it. And I did the same thing you did, I wrote it all down, you know, one year goal, three year goal, five year goals, ten year goals, etc. And uh, I started my business, the TSA, Total Sports Asia, which is now 26 years old, was started on the base, on the back of me reading this book. Um, I put the book away, I sort of forgot about it, had not opened it for me for three years. And then in the year 2000, I, I found it again, and I found all my notes of what I've written down, and I had achieved or was doing better than what I'd written down in almost every category. It was insane. And that was the aha moment for me to go, wow, this stuff works. <laughs> so <laughs> to your point now, what you were saying, I mean, it was just like uh, getting goosebumps just listening to you here. That is wild um, that we both had this sort of experience reading that particular book there. <laughs> and, and, and I think this is where it comes really interesting because in, whenever I came across, let's say, this subject of personal development or whatever you want to call it, goal setting, whatever it is, achieving achieving your targets or objectives, I had never come across this before, not as specific as, you know, do it like this, make sure you have all these different elements to the goal. And then, of course, you then have to start taking into account things like your belief. And I'm sure you remember the analogy of, you know, a belief, the way Tony Robbins described it back in the day was it's just like a tabletop. And you imagine if you have a table that has four legs, that's quite a strong table. But the belief that you have about yourself You have to have all these different reasons why you believe it. So if I think my belief is I'm going to earn £5,000 a week as a professional footballer, well, what are some of the reasons why I might be able to do that? So if that's the tabletop, well, I train every day. I try my best to do one of the legs. Well, because, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. Another legs and then another leg could be, well, because some of my other friends are doing it and I'm just as good as them. So it's almost like you're creating all these reasons. That's interesting when I kind of fast forward nearly 30 years and think about now myself and the beliefs I have about myself, the way that I would describe a belief now is just something that you accept as true or real. Mm. So it doesn't matter if it's actually true or real. It just it's something that you accept. So now the work that I'm doing, I started off as a keynote speaker and I thought, wow, no one's ever paid me any money at all for delivering a speech in public. Mm -hmm. And then I had to choose what was my fee? What do I believe I'm worth? worth and so the first time I ever got a keynote speech was for Aviva. And I've never said this publicly, but the conversation went, the guy wanted me to come in and deliver a session on leadership. And he said, same thing you said earlier, you've played under some great coaches, some great leaders, probably a few bad ones, come and share your experience. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, I'd love to do that. So I remember just being the American, been on a keynote speaking course, and I came back and this guy from Aviva asked me to come and deliver to 150 senior leaders at Aviva. Mm-hmm. And we had the conversation, it all went well. And as we're walking out the door, he turned around and he said, Paul, if you could send us in your invoice, then that'd be great. And of course, I'm like, yep, no problem. <laughs> I then walk out and I'm like, well, I have no idea what to charge this guy. You know, no idea. I phoned up my dad and I was like, dad, I've just got my first my first keynote speech. And he's like, brilliant, son. Who's it for? And I said, Aviva. And I said, I just don't know what to charge. And he said, well, how long are you speaking for? And I said, 45 minutes. And he went, um, 
maybe 750 pounds. <laughs> I thought, that seems a bit cheap. You know, they're a multi-billion man company. <laughs> anyway, so then I phoned up my mentor in America, who, by the way, was charging $10,000 an hour. I'd just come back from his course. And Marcus, you'll like this one. Who was that, by the way, the mentor? His name's Topher Morrison. He was he was delivering lots of speeches whenever I first met him in, in 2010. And this is, this is what's really interesting. Put this into the timeline. 1994, I joined Tottenham Hotspur. 1995, I read my first Tony Robbins book, Awaken the Jam Within. Mm. Fast forward 20 years from my career, I came out of professional football. I decided I wanted to become a keynote speaker. I'd met Topher, went over to Tampa, Florida, paid money to invest in myself to become a keynote speaker. Who did I share the beachfront apartment for the whole week's residential as I was learning to become a keynote speaker? <laughs> Tony Robbins' son, Jarek. <laughs> oh, Jarek oh, Robbins. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> and Jarek was already an amazing keynote speaker in the day. So I remember phoning up Topher and said, Topher, what, what's your charge? He said, Paul, let me stop you right there. You've got to tell them you're £10,000 an hour. <laughs> and I'm like, no one's paid me a pound. I can't say I'm 10000 Anyway, so I went somewhere in the middle and then I went, started typing out the email to the guy and said, listen, I would normally charge five. And that's where Marcus, I completely lost the faith and confidence and belief in myself and then dropped it down and said, but because it's Aviva and we just had the Norwich City sponsors were Aviva and I want to build a long-term relationship, I'm happy to do this one for £3,000. I was so nervous sending that email, Marcus. <laughs> and it took me about 30 minutes before I had the bravery to hit the send button. And a guy emailed me back within about 40 minutes and went, brilliant, see you next week. <laughs> so that's the first lesson of this podcast. When you're negotiating, always go higher. Correct. Don't undersell yourself. Absolutely. And I'm sure we've all done this uh, at times. And again, yeah. it, it goes back to what we said earlier. It's the confidence level, right, um, which you had on the pitch, you, you know, to some degree at, at later on. Um, but here you weren't sure yet, right? Because it is maybe the first time, and so on. Now let's let's uh, let's stick. Obviously, you now we're in the middle already of how you got a bit into it and and how your first uh, gig started. Um, you obviously developed it further from there, right? And I think if we sort of fast forward this a little bit, you've kind of you know went into the corporate space, right? You did more you know jobs with um, you know other financial inst institution. Uh, mm -hmm. Then you also, of course, went into a bit of the sports side of it. I think you worked with a, a couple of teams. Um, mm -hmm. And, of course, at the same time, you also had a uh, very public profile being a pundit on, uh, on on major networks in the UK from the BBC to Sky, etc. Um, sort of, you know, let's define that part a bit, you know, what you were doing and, and what was your vision and your goal again you were setting yourself and why you were doing the different pieces. Yeah, I think one of the first things was that I realized I just loved this subject of psychology. And to go back to the degree that I was doing while I was playing, mm -hmm. it was a sports science degree because I was really interested in the physiology and the biomechanics, et cetera, of, of individuals mm -hmm. and thought that could be a good route after I'd stopped playing. But actually, because there was a psychology module on the course as I was doing my degree. Mm -hmm. And then because when I stopped playing, I went straight into working in the corporate world, actually with a one of our former sports psychologists in Norwich City, a guy called Gavin Drake. And Gavin had this corporate in a business. I was then delivering his program, his session, his Mindspan program. And because it was so fascinating and seeing the impact and people had never come across this stuff before, and I'm thinking, this is just so normal and natural for me. But lots of people in the corporate world had never been exposed to this kind of concepts and the subject matter. And so because I started doing that for a year, and then as I was doing it and really loving the keynote speaking and delivering the training, and then I thought, 
well, actually working in the in the media would ha- give me a higher profile. So I then really enjoyed, you know, doing live matches and going to places like uh, Doha to work for BN Sports and the European mm-hmm. Championships, right. etc. And then because I loved the the delivery of training in the corporate world, I thought, well, I should probably be doing this in the sports world because of my background. Mm-hmm. So it was almost like I just had such an amazing variety of working with Premier League players, working for Sky Sports at all the big games and BBC, etc. And then also doing this in the corporate world. But what happened over the next few years was I realized that my personality and because I'm quite proactive in my approach, it didn't suit the media because you sort of need to sit there and wait for the phone to ring. It didn't suit the psychology and sport because I feel like it's still massively undervalued, even at the Premier League level. I feel like it would be doing way more. And it was every time I went to deliver a keynote or a masterclass or doing any executive coaching that the value and the response I would get from those people in the room, it felt like they really, really enjoy this. They're massively engaged in it. They really want more of it. And so in 2017, when I'd finished my master's, and the only reason really why I did that was just because of this concept and probably generalization that lots of people think that, you know, footballers aren't particularly bright. And I thought, well, if I've if I've done my degree and I've got my master's in psychology and I've written a book on psychology and I deliver keynote speeches in about psychology, then hopefully that will take away the myth, at least for me, doesn't matter about the rest of the players and what people perceive me to be. And because I loved delivering the speeches and then the leadership programs that we've been delivering for a number of years now, and because I got so much enjoyment out of that, and then it started taking me around the world. So I was off to, I know you're based over in Thailand. So I was delivering in Thailand and Singapore and Hong Kong. And then it was in America and Germany. And I was delivering all over the world. And even just before COVID, I was supposed to go to China and deliver my first sessions over in Shanghai. And it just was such an amazing experience of life. And that goes back to, you know, the same scenario I had whenever we just lost in the playoff final in my first proper year in Nord City. You know, it was about the experiences as well as, you know, all of the other benefits you have of, of becoming a keynote speaker and being able to deliver these leadership programs. So from 2017, I got rid of the sports psychology, I got rid of the media, and pretty much now for the last seven or eight years, it's just me working in the corporate world and essentially just at the higher end, normally with the senior leadership teams or the executive committees of these multinational companies. So you have a little bit of a Tony Robbins in you there too? <laughs> I think there's only one Tony Robbins. That's <laughs> true. In terms of scale between, and size, the slight difference. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is there is a little bit of a difference between me and Tony Robbins. Is that I'm five foot six and he's six foot six. So <laughs> also That's also true. he's a self made billionaire, and uh, I think there's a, the, he's just it. yeah he he's just such a he's such a phenomenon. And you know, interestingly, one of the first things I did whenever I stopped playing was I got on a plane. Uh, in 2010 in the summer when I just stopped my my playing career and I flew to LA and went on his Unleashed Power Within just for a weekend seminar. Again, it just gives you a little bit of an idea of me, of that continuous learning, constant improvement, always growing, always trying to challenge the way, you know, we do things. And, And because Tony Robbins, there's no one else can do, even these other people who try and be Tony Robbins, there's only one Tony Robbins because he's kind of been there, seen and done it. But the difference is we are all trying to do our bit. We're all trying to make an impact. And I feel like because I've got the credibility of playing in the Premier League, whatever 
it doesn't matter why people give you credibility playing the Premier League because I am the only person then to have this understanding of this dichotomy of league performance of physically going and doing it at that level, but then going and studying at the master's level. I feel like I have a really, really good mix and unique experience to be able to then share this with the corporate world. And because people do engage with the sports side of it, you know, it's a really, really good start because yeah, you could have a hundred people in the room and let's say 70% of people, you know, it doesn't matter what part of the world you're in, doesn't matter what demographic of the room is, 70% generally are really, really interested in what I'm going to say before I even said my first word, just because of playing in the Premier League. But then very quickly, I have to realize that, let's be honest, Marcus, not everybody likes sport, not everybody likes football. So then what about all the other people who don't want that angle? Well, then you have to be able to make it about them and realize that it's about people, it's about their psychology, it's about their mindset, and are they living the lives that they've wanted to achieve in their life? No, absolutely. No, I mean, I, I love this story. And, and like I said, I have, obviously, my experience with Tony has been almost 20 years. I would call him my mentor, too. I've uh, probably walked on fire five times on his UPW <laughs> events and everything yeah. else. Uh, on the platinum partnership and you name it so um now yeah it's been uh, you know he's he, uh, it's an incredible journey uh following him but also you know learning then a bit like what you're doing here now and taking it into your own space uh now again let's uh, let's talk a bit about first of all maybe just just quickly touch on on your book as well the stupid football mm -hmm. is dead i love the title already i think it's very cool i have to admit i'm sorry i haven't had a chance to read it yet but you know give us a quick sense of it um again is it from a psychology point of view or is it your story what what is it what is the book all about yeah, and again, writing a book is, is something that probably in 2023 is probably a much easier process because you can write the book and then you can publish it yourself and, you know, and yep. lots of people do that and do it very successfully. So um, that's what you can do today. Whenever I wrote this book was actually a year after I'd stopped playing. So I'd, I'd okay. wrote, written the book in 2011. Mm -hmm. I then had, a you know, this manuscript and my first option was how do I get this published? So... I uh, made a phone call to a friend and said, oh, you've published the book before. How did you do it? And said, oh, well, I used, I actually got my deal with Bloomsbury, which obviously, you know, the same publishers as Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. And I said, brilliant, can you make an introduction? So he made the introduction. I went down, showed them the manuscript, sent it to them beforehand, had the meeting, went in, said, what do you think? And they're like, can we give you a publishing deal? So it was the most simple process in the world. But actually, all I was trying to do was share the mindset and psychology of a footballer, right. of what it takes out to be successful in football or taking the exact same lessons that I applied in my footballing career and how they can be applied in the corporate world. So actually, it's I try to broaden the, the interest of who might be wanting to read this book and ultimately it's just about people. It's about, you know, right. why are people successful? What are the kind of practical tools that we can use? What are some of the concepts that you can use, not only from a sporting perspective, but also in your own personal life or in your own professional career? And so perfect example is, let's say, something like accountability or responsibility. Whenever I was a player, because I didn't fully understand this whole concept of taking 100% accountability for my choices. Mm -hmm. Whenever we would have things like, you know, pre-season training, which obviously Marcus is really hard, really challenging. You're normally doing three sessions a day. Mm -hmm. You know, you can almost be burning up to six or 7,000 calories a day. That's how hard it is. 
every single day, pretty much all day long, all of our players would be moaning and whinging and complaining the whole day. And this goes on for nearly six, seven weeks, just because it's really <laughs> tough. Right. But when you think about it, why are they moaning and who are they moaning at and who are they complaining to? It's always to the coaches or the sports scientists or the fitness coach. And when you think about that, who's going to benefit from these players doing all of this running, all of this weights, all the training and all the extra stuff they were doing in preseason? The players are going to benefit. Who's going to be stronger later in the season? The players are. Who's going to be less likely to get injured because you're stronger and fitter? The players are. So actually... Every single thing we do in preseason benefits the players, and yet all the whole way through preseason, all the players are moaning, whinging, and complaining. Now that's what you call not taking accountability. When you realize that the opposite end of that spectrum is that you can never moan, whinge, and complain about anything you do. And when I say anything you do, I'm talking about myself. I can never moan, whinge, and complain about anything I do, and I don't do this since I understood this concept, is because every single thing I do in my life, Marcus, I 100% choose to do based on my choice drivers, which are ultimately my values, my morals, my beliefs, you know, my awareness of what could happen if I do it or don't do it. So I choose every single thing I do, but I don't just choose it. I take accountability and responsibility for choosing it, which means I can't blame anyone else. So it's a really, really powerful concept, and most people don't take anywhere near as much accountability and, as what they do. And you had that as a player already as well, or was it only no, developed over no. time? Only whenever I stopped in the playing world and started working with, oh, as right. you mentioned, a okay. sports psychologist. So you were so, you were whinging and whining too? Yes. Okay. Because, right. do you know why? <laughs> do you know why? Because I wasn't aware of what I was right. doing. Okay. I wasn't exposed to it, and the culture was... Everybody just moans and complains because it's preseason. And so whenever you take this, and this is probably where whenever we go in and deliver our leadership programs for these big multinationals, we're going in, we're exposing people who have become really senior in the corporate world, but who have never been exposed to world-class people, to world-class concepts, to world-class teams. And whenever you understand what that looks like and what the different levels, because it's all levels of what you think hard work is and accountability and focus and discipline. It's all levels because you just look at someone like, I don't know, an average midfield player in the Premier League compared to the athleticism of Cristiano Ronaldo. You know, the difference in dedication. And so whenever you you understand what world class is, and that's why whenever I try and explain this to uh, any of the the executive committees or any of the senior leadership teams or the board members that I'm dealing with, My first day at Tottenham Hotspur in 1984 was with Jurgen Klinsmann, World Cup winner, mm. Teddy Sheridan, who was the Golden Boot winner, and our manager at the time was Ozzy Ardiles, who was an Argentinian World Cup winner. The only way I can describe what that's similar to is like you've just graduated from university and you get onto the graduate program of KPMG. Mm. And your first day as a graduate You walk into the boardroom of KPMG and you sit in the boardroom for the next 30 years of your life. And that's what understanding what world class is because they're running the biggest organization in the world. They're making billions of dollars and pounds. They're operating at the highest level. So you hear the way they speak. You understand the way they think. You see what they do. You see the behaviors. And if you can get that from your first day on the job all the way through your entire career, you're going to be a very, very different person to someone who's exposed to 
some people work hard some people don't. some people come in early some people don't. that's such a different yeah, I experience now i have a question for you here um again pick another sport here um michael jordan right i mean i think everyone always not just that he's maybe the greatest basketball ever lived but he's he was so dedicated so focused right he, he was probably a guy who wasn't complaining you know he would spend another hour or two before um in the gym or kobe bryant had some sort of similar stories are out there would be someone in your in the football world you either played with or you maybe you played against um, who you really saw where you saw that same thing and and maybe you went wow that is the way to do this rather than you know as at the complaining route. Um, well, that's, that's a good point. I would say it's probably slightly different in that all of my exposure to the world class players was whenever I was a really young player. Mm -hmm. So. And also, I would say the culture of professional football in the mid to late 90s was nowhere near what professional looks like today. Okay. So, for instance, whenever I was with these incredible players at Tottenham Hotspur, like your David Ginola's or your Les Ferdinand's or Saul Campbell or Darren Anderton or whoever these top players were, the, probably the culture wasn't to be the hardest worker the most professional, eating the right foods, not drinking any alcohol, all of that kind of stuff. It was just, there was almost like a, a mix. It was probably a slightly less pressured environment, although it was obviously the most pressure at that time. The difference between as football has evolved and obviously athleticism has become more and more prominent because of sports science and introduction of sports scientists. I would say whenever I played with someone like a Robert Green was a really interesting example. Robert Green was our goalkeeper at Norwich City and he came through the youth team, so I saw him develop. But then whenever we got relegated out of the Premier League, West Ham bought him. So then he went back into the Premier League and then he moved on. He started playing for England. Then he played in the World Cup at England for England and in the USA. Um, and then he joined Chelsea and, and he just had a really fantastic career. But if I go back to his work ethic of what he was like every single day from when he was a kid at Norwich City all the way through to becoming a first-team player before going on to join West Ham and play for England, his work ethic was he was always the first person in and he was always the last person to leave. Right. And that's such a – it's almost like a throwaway comment to do that. Right. But whenever that's your life, you know you're actually working harder than every single person in the right. team. I mean, it's cliche, but I think when you see these examples, whether it's the, the one you just mentioned or whether you're looking at the Kobe Bryans or Michael Jordans of the world, which are well-documented, right, of how their, their work ethics in terms of training and, and the discipline they bring to it versus others who can have maybe huge talent, but, uh, you know, not quite the same work ethics. Uh, it makes a difference, and I think that's the point we're both trying to make here, right? Um, and that works in, in, in corporate world as well, right? Absolutely. Putting in the extra well, Marcus, hours and all these things works. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, it's, it might sound cliche and it's a throwaway comment, but you try and do it. You try and be the first person in every day and you try and be the last person out every day. Mm -hmm. And you realize how incredibly tough and challenging and how much dedication and discipline that takes uh, because absolutely. I would never want to do it. And this is what's really interesting. In my world, I knew that I wasn't world-class. I knew that I didn't have what I believed it took to be the top player, to be the best that I could be. Do you know why? Because I made a decision 
when I was about 22, I wasn't really playing enough at Norwich City and my career wasn't going where I wanted it to go. So I thought, back to the Tony Robbins, if you want to have massive changes in your outcomes, you need to have massive changes in your behaviours. So I thought, do you know what I need to do? I need to stop drinking alcohol. I'm going out every week as if like I'm playing in the first team and celebrating a win. I haven't played in the first team and I'm still going out celebrating. I need to give up alcohol. So I stopped drinking for two and a half years so that I could then establish myself, start playing in the team regularly. But what was really interesting was I got to a point where I was going out, I was playing in the team, I was going out, I wasn't really having the best nights out, I wasn't really enjoying myself. My life was very, what's the word, mundane, middle of the, even though I was playing in these games, but I didn't feel like I had much joy in my life. Right. As much as playing in front of big games and playing in front of the crowds and scoring goals, yes, that's great. But there's so much discipline, dedication, and hard work goes into making that happen that my life was actually really dull. Mm. <laughs> and I realized, I thought, do I want to get to 33, 34, 35 and have lots of money in the bank, whatever I might win as a team and not a lot of experiences or do I want to start introducing more of the social side, more of the nights out, more of the good times, more of the holidays? And I thought, yeah, I do actually. And so that was my decision that I started going back out socializing and I was very, very comfortable making that decision, knowing that I might not be the best that I could ever possibly be, but I would have a really good time while I was playing. Yeah, and it's an interesting example of you know making conscious choices, right? Uh, which again, not a lot of people do. <laughs> um, now let's come back a little bit to uh, you know what, what you're doing now and, and how you work with companies um, and the programs you guys are now building. Um, you know, because I understand there's there's a little difference to the model as well as I think maybe there's other you bring in other people into it as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whatever you can share there, but it'd be great to maybe uh, start doing that now. Yeah, what was really interesting was for pretty much nearly you know nine or ten years, I was delivering all of the sessions and whether it was the keynote or the masterclass or the workshop or the executive coaching. And obviously, you know, that's fine because I was it was going okay. You know, I was working for lots of the biggest companies in the world, like your Microsofts and your Cisco's and your, you know, your Investex and Invesco and all these different companies. Mm. But then I realized that actually if I can bring more, let's say, world-class people into our team so that not only I can deliver, but we can get a whole range of incredible people from lots of different backgrounds. And so it's probably taken me, Marcus, maybe three or four years for me to build up what I would consider this world-class roster of speakers. So I started reaching out to my network of people who were either in football, whether it's Premier League winners, whether it's international players, and then started reaching out into other sports like people who had competed in the Olympics. So then we got people who have won Olympic gold medalists over the different uh, sports and, and events. And then I started thought, right, okay, let's go outside into places like rugby and uh, boxing and snooker and all these different sports. And like, okay, that's all the sports. So let's get world champions from sports. So we got a massive collection of amazing people who have got to the pinnacle of their careers. And I thought, right, what about the business world? Who can I reach out to in the business world that could share their experience? Because lots of people who are working in business have similar issues. And if someone's 20 years down the line and 
you know, work with, you know, billion dollar companies, then maybe they might be able to help the companies and clients we're working with. So then I started reaching out and get these business leaders, these like business captains, people who have been there, seen and done it, who are now part of our team. And I thought, well, what about the military? That's a great analogy for mm. the challenges that people face in business every single day. So then we've gone and got fighter jet pilots, people who've been openly gay fighter jet pilots, the first female fighter jet pilots, people who have, you know, performed at this level under severe pressure. What can we learn from them? And I thought, well, well, one of the best ways of understanding, you know, how to be the best in anything is by studying it. So academics, what about these PhDs and doctors? So let's go and get clinical psychologists and people who have studied it so then they can share their understanding. And the last category is really just people who have just done extraordinary things like climbed Everest, um, single-handedly rode the Atlantic and cycled around the world, you know, just like amazing, amazing achievements. So now we have this incredible team full of world-class people who have done things is there a name to it do you have a company name or or is it a website or how, how, no, yes. how much is that a public already what you're sharing here yeah so this is the really interesting thing marcus because we have these people who are like global sport and icons who are very famous people but because i don't have the i don't feel it's right for me to be able to share these people with in a public forum so if you googled me or went on my website it's just me it's just my name but whenever we're working with all the different multinationals that we're working with once they get to the point where they're interested in the leadership programs and because we use our elite performance framework they're really really fascinated how you can bring together this world-class team so that we can share all of this combined knowledge with their senior leadership team or their board or their executive committee. And that's really a way for me to go, it's not my place to take credit for these people who've done amazing things in their life, but whenever there's a company or a MD or someone who's gonna be signing off this leadership program, if they're interested in what we're doing, then that's whenever you share all of these incredible people of who we can name. So, so you bring them in as as you see fit, is, is that? It's, it's more who the company wants. So oh, I'll give you okay. a quick example. Okay. I'll give you a quick example. I was speaking to the CEO of a big multi-billion pound US insurance firm. And I was speaking to them in Fenchurch Street in London. And I was talking about all this range of people who we have working for us and through the elite performance framework that we have um, built up over the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. And the guy was absolutely, you know, he was buzzing over the people that we could bring into the program. And he's like, that's amazing. If I can help my senior leadership team think more like an elite athlete and get better. And there's no, that we can always improve. And he was just really buzzing off the kind of the sports angle. Right. So the people that he would bring in were probably more sporting people than okay. business people. But so and you like, provide a list. So you say, okay, I got yes, three so we have, guys we have a here whole which team. fits what you may be Completely. looking for and pick one, two. That's yes. how it works. Okay. That's how it works. So then we have we drop in like these different world class speakers on top of our lead performance framework right. that we'd work with. Okay. So that was who he wanted from the US insurance firm. Mm. I walked twenty minutes around the corner to Finsbury Square. I walked in to speak to big audit and accountancy firm, and I walked in speaking to the CEO and said the exact same thing. This is who we've got. This is the lead performance framework. Here are all these world class speakers from all these sport business military, academia, and, you know, world exploring. And the first thing he said was, yeah, the sports people aren't going to really work for us, Paul. And I thought, that's fine. That, does, that doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference to me because it's who the people are going to resonate best fits with his team. And so that's for me why it's a really, really good model because I was actually in, in New York in January and I was in seeing um, a large... Uh, 
bank, large global bank. And we were talking about it and I was saying, these are all the people, this is who we're working with, this is the framework. And I said, just out of interest, have you got it? Like, I'd love to hear some feedback. Have you ever come across anybody who, you know, has kind of been able to deliver this kind of world-class program before? And she said, I've seen a few different speakers at the level you're talking about, but they're all individual. So it's like I would have seen someone at one conference and then seen someone at a different conference the next year. Or So I've seen some of these people over the years, mm. but I've never seen anyone been able to bring them together for one program for one company in a joined up manner. So that's for me where we have our USP that been able to bring in the world-class people that we have and been able to continuously and consistently provide the same theme and message over whatever the obviously the, the issues and objectives that we're trying to help them achieve with their program and that's where i feel like we've got something really special i love this now again uh for people who are listening um how would they find you right now um you know besides googling your name is there a particular website you'd like them to go to or email address what what, what can we drop in here yes yeah, probably a couple of different ways one of the easiest ways is to find me on linkedin that's probably my um my kind of the platform that mm-hmm. that probably I'm, I'm most on because I know you, you're able to have like 30,000 connections on LinkedIn, but yep. because I already have that, it's then just people, they end up following you on there. So it's probably easier to, to connect with me on LinkedIn, follow me on there. If you, you want to go to my website, obviously it's just paulmcveigh.com, then that's an easy way to go and check out. And obviously you can get in touch with me through our form on there, or just as simple if you want to email me, it's just paul at paulmcveigh.com. So, so really simple. So LinkedIn, go to my website, paulmcveigh.com, or email me, which is paul at paulmcveigh.com. Yeah, and we'll make sure we have that in the notes too, so everyone who didn't manage to catch that while they're driving um, can <laughs> read on it. So that that's perfect. Yeah. No, I, because that's I think it's important because you, you're sharing so much great info here. Um, I want to make sure people also have a chance to reach out uh, if they like what they hear uh, and want to engage with you. So, uh, uh, Paul, this has been a lot of fun here. Um, you know, let's sort of uh, sort of wrap it up. Um, you know, you know, you, I think you shared very much already uh, what it is now you're doing, your focus, uh, your careers. Uh, I'm assuming you're still watching plenty of football too. Um, so maybe <laughs> uh, fin- final thoughts on the Premier League race here. I'm sure everyone is talking City versus Arsenal and all the memes are out there already, of course, <laughs> um, yeah. making fun of one or the other. Uh, what's you your prediction what? or thoughts? <laughs> you know what? The, the, probably the, the, the simplest way to, to finish off this really, really interesting chat and I really enjoyed it, Marcus, as well. So thanks for having me. But the best way to finish this off is at this stage over this weekend that we're recording this Erling Haaland has just scored his 50th goal in England in his first season in England and before he arrived here at the start of the season with Man City you know he's scoring all these goals in different countries around the world and you're thinking oh I wonder what he's like if he comes up against some of the best players in the world and then he comes to England and he is absolutely destroying every defence he plays again and this is at the stage where I think he's four goals behind the all-time Premier League record in his first season and that for me just sums up what performance, what excellence, what being the best is all about. Mm. This guy, his attitude, his athleticism, his technique, his focus, his ability just to keep going and going, and his just single-minded determination to be the best of the best is so scary that I think, wow, if I even had like 1% of what that guy had, I would have been 10 times the player. And that's where it's, it's fascinating because... 
I tried my best for 20 years to be a professional footballer and I got to this level. That guy is at the very top. He's up there with the Ronaldos and the Messis and all the best of the best already. Yeah. And if he carries on the way he's going, he's going to be the best ever. For sure. I mean, at the age he is at, um, and, and I think what you said, when you when you watch him, not that I've ever met him, not, uh, personally know him, but you do believe that he has this mindset that he either is the best already or can be the best in the world. Um, and, and that's how he walks around. That's, uh, so the mindset, I, I have no doubt if you would talk to him about it, whether he could already articulate it that way or not, who knows. But uh, I think he, uh, it's incredible to watch and, and it's fun to see for sure. Um, you know, he's unfortunately playing for a national team where he's not going to do much on the world stage yeah. in that sense, but uh, you never know. Um, you never but know. for sure in club football, um, he is going to be there. He's going to be a superstar, and he already is, of course, um, in, in, in the current stage here. So, um, well, that, I think that was a good way to finish it off, and we'll all be enjoying the rest of the last few months, uh, weeks here uh, left in the, in the league and see who will take these titles uh, in all the different leagues. Uh, still plenty up for playing and of course the relegations is equally as we touched on earlier uh, the battle is as hard there as it is on the top right um, and that, that's every year I think is exciting to watch the top you know who really finally takes a crown but also who is the team which uh, which can either save themselves or not and, and I think in the Premier League again there's still plenty of teams that are battling it out there so I'm sure both of us will watch it and uh, enjoy it yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for having us, Marcus. Really enjoyed that. Same here, Paul. We'll keep talking. All the best. Cheers, then. Cheers. Bye-bye. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.